Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCooey.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Practice Group Chair Marcus Funk is joined by Dr. Lana Israel and Bob Doyle, who co-founded and closely collaborate on Nashville-based edtech company Musology. Musology is a disruptive platform that uses the power of music and videos to make math fun and accessible while challenging students to learn and retain the math concepts critical to their progress. Topics discussed include the significant effect Musology has had on the lives of children and young adults, and how COVID has impacted schooling and education generally, and EdTech specifically. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Lana, Bob, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you guys join us uh, today on White Collar Briefly. And as I mentioned to Lana, as we were getting prepared, you know, usually we have clients, we have contacts, we have people that we work with, but that we don't know personally. In this case, it is a real treat to have two folks on that I admire both professionally and personally. And with that great fanfare, I want to thank you both for joining us and uh, welcome you to our podcast. Thanks for having us, Marcus. So oftentimes we'll do a quick introduction where we talk about people's backgrounds. And and candidly, in both of your cases, I definitely want to talk about musology. I definitely want to talk about what you guys are up to and what is in the future professionally. But I also would love to have uh, you share with us some of your background personally, kind of how you got to where you are, your your journey. I think our listeners would find it very interesting. I'm fascinated by it, frankly. And so I hope you will indulge us with a little more background uh, about yourselves than we might normally uh, share. So maybe we start, Lana, with, with you. Tell us a little bit about your, your background, with which I'm very familiar, but t- tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and, again, how you got to where we are now. Absolutely. And thank you again, Marcus, for having us with you today. So Musology is a digital music-based learning company. And my fascination with learning began at a pretty tender age. I wound up writing my first book on learning at 13, presenting my eighth grade science project at a global education conference in Sydney that summer, also at 13. And that kind of catapulted me on this career as a teenager, whereby I started lecturing globally to students, teachers, parents, and corporate audiences about how to optimize learning and memory and creativity based on some research I had done in eighth grade and wound up self-publishing that first book in the States, had it published around the world, translated into multiple languages, started to create multimedia learning products and content. So I had this very profound and deep fascination with memory and the mind and innovative approaches to performing these types of cognitive functions more efficiently and effectively. And the focus was, how could I apply this type of learning technology to the things I was doing in the classroom and in school? And unbeknownst to me, there were a lot of other young people and adults 
who had the same questions and challenges and interest and got to college and did my undergraduate work at Harvard and studied psychology there. And we had an amazing psychology department there. And that's when I got introduced to the theoretical side of memory, cognition, neuroscience. And so started to get really fascinated with that, did an undergraduate thesis that in a crazy fashion has been cited over 800 times in the academic literature and went on to do my graduate work at Oxford where I had the distinct pleasure of meeting the doctor of funk. Uh, that's you, Marcus. And continued to research cognitive psychology with a focus on memory. And so I was doing a, a postdoc at Oxford and I, I joked that I had an early life crisis and decided to leave academia, as did you for some reason, Marcus, and wound up moving to Manhattan to pursue another childhood passion of mine, which was music. I started playing piano at 10, wrote my first song at 10. My mom, who's a retired medical doctor, was a piano prodigy as a child. And so I grew up surrounded by music. And so moved to Manhattan, started working in the music business. And it was at that time that I had this epiphany that music is not only this incredibly engaging entertainment medium, but also as a former memory researcher, realized how powerful music is as a learning tool. And so I know we'll discuss that further when we, we dig into musology. That's a little bit about my background and kind of what brought me to founding musology ultimately. And of course, Lana, because you're so humble, you're leaving out a lot of the other accolades that anyone who's interested can look up online, I'm sure. The lesser accolade is that you're a Rhodes Scholar. The greater accolade is that you were the social co-chair at New College at Oxford. Of course, new because it was founded in the 1300s or something like that. So it was new at the time. And your co-chair uh, was one Marcus Funk myself. So I'm, uh, that is where I think our our relationship began, which which of course is really the, the highlight of the Oxford career. I think we peaked. We peaked there, Marcus. It's all. It's all been downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't even articulate it properly, but it is, in fact, it is, in fact, an accurate observation. Now, Bob, let, let's let's turn to you a little bit and tell us about. I mean, you've got a fascinating background. So, tell us a little bit about yourself and and sort of how you got into the the, the music industry and then ultimately how you started working with Lana. Well, I'd always played music and had an interest in music, though my degree is not in music. And I grew up in the Midwest, St. Louis, went to school there in uh, the University of Missouri. And I was part of that generation that got caught up in the Vietnam War. So I ended up uh, becoming a pilot in the Air Force. And that took me to a place in rural Alabama, some Alabama, which was my introduction to country music, which ultimately became my passion. And uh, I uh, elected to move to Nashville as opposed to making a career of the Air Force and got in the Air National Guard, continued to fly, but uh, started to pursue a career in the music business there in Nashville. And I started at Warner Brothers Records and then worked at one of the PROs, ASCAP, when I decided I wanted to chase the music publishing side of the business more specifically. And I left ASCAP in 1988 and started my own company with a young writer named Garth Brooks. And we, you know, pursued 
the artist management publishing side of the business from there forward. And at some point in uh, Gar's career, Lana came in and assisted us in some research. We had met earlier through a mutual client and that uh, relationship uh, allowed me to learn a little bit more about Lana and her academic and also her intellectual prowess. And we used her to really set up, in a sense, our 2014 tour with the information she was able to do and, and glean from the marketplace after Garth had had a 14-year hiatus. I can ask you a question I'm sure no one's ever asked you, which is how did you first come to know Garth Brooks? I met him through a tape, believe it or not. His landlady was a friend, and she was a songwriter, and she sent me this tape of three or four of his songs, and one song really caught my attention, which later became his first single, a song called Much Too Young to Feel This Damn Old. And we began a relationship, but it wasn't uh, initially... I My interest in him initially was to sign him up as a member of ASCAP. And we signed up, uh, he joined, and I pursued what I typically would do with any young writer is try to get him and introduce him to various publishers in the community. And nobody really responded or didn't resonate with anyone. And after about six, seven months, uh, I approached him about going into business together. And so I left ASCAP and he and I started a company together. And the, and the rest, as they say, is history, right? Marcus, I, I was going to say, Bob's, Bob's so humble that w what he neglected to mention is that when he was struggling to find a publishing deal for Garth initially in Nashville, and how many publishers regret that now, but Bob actually took out a second mortgage on his house, married with a young kid, to come up with the funds to help produce Garth's first EP series of songs that he wrote. So he, he, he wouldn't share that with you, but that just shows you the degree of really belief and commitment Bob had as a, as a young manager and publisher. Well, thank you for sharing that, Lana. So moving from your respective backgrounds to your collaboration now with Musology, and you touched on it a bit at the, at the outset, Lana, just tell us about Musology. Absolutely. So Bob and I started Musology based on an observation. It's an observation that we really have all had, and that is that many kids struggle with learning, yet know the words to all their favorite songs. And you know, when we point that out, people shake their head and they go, that's, oh, that's absolutely right. And so you might go, well, why is that? Uh, that's because music activates brain regions that are critical for successful learning, namely memory, attention, motivation, and emotion. And we've all experienced the learning power of music. If you think about one of the earliest things we, we learned to music, it's the ABCs. Now the ABCs is actually a very challenging cognitive task in which the learners asked to memorize 26 nonsense syllables and in perfect order. And if we asked adults to perform a task like that, most of them couldn't do it. Like, hey, here's 26 pieces of random information, <laughs> memorize it. But little babies can do it when we put the information to music. And to this day, if I were to ask you, Marcus, what comes first, P or Q, you're probably going LMNOP to, to answer that question. Similarly, if 
If you hear a song that you haven't heard for decades, i.e. when we were co-social chairs back at Oxford, uh, <laughs> if you hear a song that you hadn't heard for 20 years, again, all the words come back to you. That's like an incredible phenomenon in the learning space. We don't see learning methodologies, technologies that can achieve that, yet music can seamlessly, easily. So I started to chat to Bob about this idea. And Bob, as you know, is an incredibly successful, thoughtful, talented music publisher and manager, has spent his professional career in the music industry and certainly understands the power of a song to engage and connect. And I said, Bob, what if we just slightly redirect how we're using music and we engage people as, as, as learners, which, which made a lot of sense to Bob. And when we started to look at how music was, was being utilized in the learning space, it was basically limited to early childhood learning, Marcus, where it's saturated as, as you know, with your girls, right? I mean, songs on everything when they were young. And then after about kindergarten, first grade, poof, music disappears from formal education. And we said, why is that? And what if we demonstrate and prove that you could use music to teach entire subjects, subjects that were slightly more kind of technical and sophisticated than what people think you can use music for. And we said, what if we enlist our network of hit songwriters and producers, people that Bob and I have worked with professionally, the same people who are writing music that young people and teenagers listen to electively, and we teach them academic content that they're struggling with. And when we looked at the K-12 landscape, which has leaped off the page as an acute pain point that probably any parent who has tried to help their kids with math homework can attest to is pre-algebra, middle school math. So that's where we started and we developed a music-based learning platform consisting of a series of iterative comprehensive music videos that teach fundamental pre-algebra or algebra readiness skills, procedures, topics. And, and is, is your focus on a particular age range, a particular type of academic pursuit, in other words, math versus some other area? Where is your current focus? And also, where, where do you see this expanding into? That's a, that's a great question. We get asked that question a lot, Marcus. We began with pre-algebra math because it is such an acute pain point in the K-12 landscape. What we wanted to also do was be able to instantiate this concept of using music to teach more technical content, more rigorous content. And I say that in juxtaposition to how music is used when it comes to early childhood learning or when you do see it being used K-12. It's usually like one-off novelty songs, so Conjunction Junction or the 50 Nifty United States or the Periodic Table. So we started with pre-algebra because it's where kids really struggle with math. It's the first time girls start underperforming boys in math, which has nothing to do with innate ability. It's where many parents struggle to assist their kids with homework. It's the last opportunity to get students proficient before they advance to algebra, at which point, if a student doesn't press, pass algebra on his or her first attempt, they're unlikely to graduate from high school on time or at all. And so it's really a high stakes subject and that's where we started. But we, we chose pre-algebra because of those reasons and also to instantiate 
use of music as a learning technology. We felt like if we could teach something quasi-technical like pre-algebra and people joke it's when, when math involves letters as well as numbers. But if we could su successfully use music there, then by extension, we could use music to teach almost anything. And so that's our broader vision. We don't view ourselves as a math education company. We don't really view ourselves as an ed tech company. We view ourselves as a learning company and we view music as a very potent learning technology. And, and Bob, when, when you first started talking about this concept with Lana, as someone who's been in the music industry and successfully so his entire life, or um, what, what was it about what Lana was sort of talking about and what you guys are collectively thinking about that made you think that this had you know, real promise for the future? Well, I, I'm very aware of the impact of a hit song. And so sort of intuitively, it was like, well, this makes sense. However, Lana is an academic and a scientist. It was like, well, how do you validate this? How do you create some sort of presentation to your community to be able to say this works? And she was able to do that. And she did it in concert with the University of Tennessee. And so we did a randomized trial, I believe, and ended up with statistically significant results as a result of uh, that. And um, it gave us even more uh, confidence in, hey, this is something we should try to pursue and see what happens. And Lana, on that topic that Bob just mentioned, the, the, the trial, the testing essentially of the theory, tell us a little bit about where you are on that and how you've been able to, whether you've been able to, to validate this intuitive concept that you know, learning through music works uh, and how that sort of stacks up to other methods that are out there in terms of, of, of education. Absolutely, Marcus. So the uh, randomized control trial that Bob was referring to, we conducted end of 2015. It was a small scale RCT, randomized control trial, with low performing students at an urban middle school in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And we were asked to teach these students a gateway bottleneck topic in math, which if there are any math teachers out there listening, you know, it's fractions. And this was actually pre the, the full musicology platform. This is where we're still trying to demonstrate does the methodology work or establish does this methodology work and so we created three music videos that taught students basic topics and fractions numerator denominator equivalent fractions all four operations of fractions how to convert fractions into decimals and then we had the same talent present the same exact information conversationally with the same graphic overlays and so we controlled for essentially song versus no song and we obtained these really eye-popping statistically significant results that indicated that after a seven-day delay after no further exposure to the music videos or the conversational videos that students in the musology condition who outperformed their counterparts in the control group at a three-day delay they maintain their learning advantages whereas students in the control group they basically their retention and performance declined back to pretest measures and what was fascinating about this study is and this is a suggestive study it wasn't rct small-scale rct but the findings kind of flew in the face of contemporary understanding of how, quote unquote, recall after learning works. And basically what those studies show that is, is that if a learner is exposed to new information 
and they've only had limited exposure to it, not really enough for it to transfer into long-term memory. And, and those were the conditions of this study that typically what you see after a three-day delay with no exposure to the information is a slight spike in retention when scientists believe the brain's consolidating the information. And then after about three days, you always see a drop in retention if there's no further exposure to the information. And so interestingly, that's what we saw in the control group. Yet the results we saw in the musology group where this increased spike heightened retention was actually sustained flies in the face of our contemporary understanding, like traditional understanding of how recall after learning works. And what's been so fascinating, Marcus, is drawing on that initial research, we've continued to conduct studies on musology and music-based learning and continue to obtain results that fly in the face of contemporary understanding of memory and the mind. By means of another example, we find that when students pretest before watching a musology video, the mode or the most frequently occurring score is a 30%, usually a 30 or 40%. And if you look at what like a visualization of the, the data looks like a histogram, it's a bell-shaped curve. We're all familiar with that kind of that bell-shaped curve, right? And, and what we're told is that every human trait and characteristic is characterized by a bell-shaped curve, whether it's IQ or height in the, in the population. Every distributed trait and characteristic is supposed to be characterized by a bell-shaped curve. We find that after watching a musology music video, the first time students post-test, the mode, the most frequently occurring score, jumps from a 30 or 40% to a, a perfect 100%. And when you look at that distribution, it's no longer a bell-shaped curve. It's this asymptotic distribution where you just see a huge spike in performance at the 100% mark. And then you see like a tail falling off from there. Probably easier to understand if you're looking at it than hearing it, but there again, it's a finding that just flies in the face of contemporary understanding of how like memory and learning and academic performance is like supposed to work. And so we've hit on something, I think, game changing here and very fascinating. And, and if you look at the history of science and psychology, when these studies were conducted in the past or when these theories were hypothesized, like developed, music-based learning wasn't part of the equation. And so it really changes everything when we think about what's possible for us as learners, never mind the fact that it's actually super fun and engaging and motivating as well as highly effective as, as a learning tool. So to your point in question, Marcus, we've continued over the last several years to obtain data, conduct research on music-based learning and have been very honored to receive two competitive R&D grants from the National Science Foundation and, and one such grant from the U.S. Department of Education. Well, and speaking of, um, of, of sort of honors and recognition, I, I understand you. There's, a, there's another more recent honor that you uh, have received in terms of the music. So in May, we won the Software and Information Industry Association's Innovation Showcase, which we were delighted by and again very honored to win and recently we uh, found out that we are in the initial ballot for consideration for a grammy award for best children's music album so the album we recently released and again we're delighted that it's under consideration for a grammy nomination is called love 
at, and that's an at sign, Love at First Sound, When Math Met Music. It's available on Amazon, Apple Music, and Spotify. And we'd love for your listeners to be able to hear a snippet of, of one of the songs off the album. Well, we've got it queued up, Lana and Bob, so let's take a listen. Left and right, X up and down, Y. Left and right, X up and down, Y. Left and right, X up and down, Y. Reference lines on which you rely. The space for you, graph points, has a long name. It's called Cartesian coordinate plane. This coordinate plane comes to be when you drop the X and Y Obviously, as a scientist, look, look at memory and learning is something you've done. I, I think mind mapping was what you were, your doctoral thesis was about. And of course, we, we talked about learning with Lana, the uh, the video and book series. Uh, you know, this is, by the way, one of those things, right? Whenever you go to a place uh, like Oxford, all the, all the new incoming folks are always looking up everyone else to see kind of, hey, what's this person all about? Because frankly, the group of people is pretty amazing. And so that's one of the reasons we all kind of figured you out pretty pretty early on in terms of some of your, your background that you usually, when you're not forced to brag about it by people like myself, you tend to keep under your hat. But in terms of the is sort of moving from the scientific approach to really anecdotal evidence, I know you've spent a lot of time with teachers, both you and Bob have, talking to administrators in different educational environments. What have you been hearing from the front lines, if you will, from the trenches, from the folks who are actually using uh, museology in, in the classroom? So first of all, I think trenches is a very appropriate term <laughs> to discuss or, or to refer to education right now. I mean, teachers and administrators are, they are really champions with what they're contending with, with hybrid learning, blended learning, remote and in-class learning in a very, very unique and novel environment. And what we've heard about museology historically from teachers, administrators, and parents, quite frankly, I think is even more important given the current climate. And what we hear is that it's super engaging. Kids go home singing songs about decimals and, and math after using museology. We hear parents say, and teachers and kids say, like this child was failing, had super low self-esteem, had given up, and after using museology, my child is, my child, my student is for the first time in his or her life experiencing self-efficacy as a learner and success in math and they feel so proud and, and, and happy and it's just so incredible to to see that side of the platform and the learning system marcus where in addition to these really powerful learning gains we're just seeing transformative shifts in student sense of self and self-confidence and 
like we hear really sad things from kids actually we hear kids come into a class or a summer school program saying i'm dumb i mean these are these are like 12 year olds saying i'm they've internalized this this thought i'm dumb it's very very sad and i hate school and math is hard and i, I don't care about going to high school or college. And within weeks, we have these same kids going, I feel so proud of myself. I can now get 100% on my math test or math is now my favorite subject. I can't wait to take algebra and go to college. And museology has not just given me confidence in my ability to do math, it's given me confidence in my ability to do anything. So it's pretty like amazing and profound what we're hearing from teachers. I think one of my favorite quotes is from Shirley Forehand, a math department head at a high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, whose ninth graders were performing at a fifth and sixth grade proficiency level when they entered ninth grade. And she said, museology is probably one of the best resources I have. And I've been teaching for 25 years. It reminds reminded me of something I, I grew up on, Schoolhouse Rock, but on steroids. That's maybe one of my favorite quotes. It's always an honor for us to be compared to Schoolhouse Rock, which we like, regard with the highest of esteem. And so now more so than ever, those comments are super important because school and learning's hard. It's very hard right now for teachers, for students, for parents, for everybody in the equation. And something that's engaging and fun and effective is so needed and necessary right now, something that's easy to use digitally and on a website, something that teachers can use to direct learning or kids could use to support self-paced, self-directed learning, which Museology does. I think it's needed now more so than ever. And when I talk to people about the state of education, the other thing is like, we just want to bring a smile to a kid's face right now. I think <laughs> more than anything, that's some just some levity, some fun is needed in education, and museology does that too. So, Bob, uh, obviously, Lana comes to this from a from a scientific, from an academic background, although obviously also infused with practical experience. You come to this with a, an expertise in the music industry and 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 as a very successful business person so when you when you're sitting with lana and you and lana present on museology and you're presenting at times to people who may not have be steeped in this from an educational learning perspective as a business person i mean how do you see folks reacting to this platform and to this exciting new way of thinking about how we educate our young folks I mean, it's been a process. To me, uh, like I said, it, because I'm in the entertainment business, which is the engagement business, and I think that, to digress a little bit, one of the things that I've sort of gleaned out of this experience is this sense that a teacher is no different than an entertainer, you know? And I think if we all think through our academic careers, you can think of professors or teachers that really impacted your life because they were able to engage you in a way that, unlike others, that were just basically talking heads. And I think it's the incorporation of all of these aspects of the music business, the entertainment business, that I think we're trying to bring to the classroom. And it's a big shift in a sense, but I think it's necessary. And I think with this remote learning, it's becoming even more critical that teachers don't come off on a flat screen just as flat as their you know uh, visual and so it's it's going to be a very interesting next couple of years and i think that that the business 
part of this, I guess, is that I think we are going to see a change. I've gone through in the music industry a total disruption as to how music was distributed, the fact that we no longer have physical product, the fact that people don't even buy stuff anymore, you access information. And I think these are things that maybe we're beginning to see in the field of education where maybe brick and mortar isn't as important as the presenter and the material. And so maybe a class maybe be 100,000 people as opposed to 30 people, but it you're gonna get the very best teaching. And um, I think that there's a, a value proposition that has to be, you know, take place in the education space that puts a value on great presentation and the ability to reach people and convey information. It happens in so many other areas that, and we give it, whether it be baseball or sports, professional sports, entertainment, you know, the, the ministry in some sense. And I just feel like we're going through a, a change. And I think with what Lana's developed and the way she's approached this is that we're on a very cutting edge of that change. And the pandemic, in a sense, is that old thing, you know, for every blessing, there's a curse, and for every curse, there's a blessing. The unfortunate thing is that pandemic created a situation that created a whole lot more awareness for what we're doing and how we're doing it. And let's hope that we can help in whatever way we can to make the um, this very unique period of time or benefit for teachers and for students and for everybody needs a little help right now. And uh, there's a big gap that's going on. And Marcus, I might add to, to what Bob just said, the, the, the pandemic has also kind of shone a light on a pretty important kind of disparity in education, and that's lack of equitable access to learning technology and high quality learning content. And sadly, what we are seeing with remote learning and at home learning is that there are significant numbers of students who have for all intents and purposes just like stopped learning right now because they don't have internet at home or they don't have access to, to like a steady internet connection or they don't have technology and it's 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 actually a, a very very big issue don't think there are a lot of kind of great solutions and oddly enough Think we're at this point in contemporary human history where really the entertainment and the music industry could step up as, as an industry through platforms like Musology, like music-based learning, to help make music-based learning accessible to learners, whether they're accessing our content on radio, TV, or you know, via an internet connection on a device. And I think it's imperative that we find a way to reach and support these these learners right now so that some learning versus no learning occurs. Because I, I don't think a lot of people have really grasped the significance of like significant numbers of students just like not learning for probably what will be a school year and a half if you look at school closures last year. And in many cases, a lot of these students are already below proficiency level. And so you're looking at a very severe situation that requires like immediate attention and consideration now. You know, tying some of these strands together, 
And Bob, I thought, very interesting point of viewing teachers as entertainers. And I think we can all think of examples of where we we have teachers, whether that's, frankly, whether that's even at the university level, but certainly in the high school level, grade school level, where teachers convey very accurate information in a, in, in a very comprehensive way, but we don't remember a thing about them because they are not entertainers. They're very boring. Whereas other teachers, you know, just by personal dynamism or otherwise, are able to convey information that does have sort of a stickiness. And and maybe you can kind of comment on this. I was just listening to a, to another podcast where they were interviewing someone who was talking about how people's memory, ability to memor, memorize things is actually not that different across people, but different people are stimulated internally more. In other words, if you if you present something really interesting, people will remember that more than if it's something that they're personally not that interested in, and some people just tend to be more interested in more things. So that's sort of an amateurish way of, of, of teeing up the question, but is really the, 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 the unique selling proposition of museology that you're able to present information in a way that does stimulate people even when they're not otherwise interested in math, let's say, and, and that that in, in turn results in the stickiness that you described earlier, where people remember things, students and learners remember things down the road longer than they would otherwise? So, so that's entirely correct, Marcus. If you get, you look at students who struggle with learning, but they're really into sports and they can tell you like every single fact statistic about their favorite players, sports team. So interest is really very, it's like an important condition for, for learning and retention. And when you're interested in something, it doesn't feel like learning. You're just, you're passionate. You love doing it. So you spend time at it. You're motivated. You attend to the information you're learning because there's meaning and context for you. And so it's very true that if a learner's like checked out of math class and they're not paying attention, they're not going to learn the information. And again, if, if they've got this like limiting belief that I'm dumb, math is hard, of course they're going to check out and not even try apply themselves or, or, or pay attention. So we had, your question reminds me of an anecdote. We had a student, 2016 summer school program, star football player in Knoxville. Every high school wanted him to pass summer school so they could have him come play football, hopefully at their high school. Really, really, you know, great kid, just failed failed eighth grade math. And um, that summer we, we did surveys with students at the beginning and end of the summer. And I wound up doing his exit exit survey. And I said, hey, you know, like, what did you think when your teacher said you're gonna go to a website, i.e. museology to learn about math? He said, well, I thought it was gonna be horrible because math is boring and I fall asleep in class. He said, and I said, so what happened when you, when you went to the website? He said, I couldn't believe it, it was music. He said, I love music, music wakes me up. And he said to me, my teacher taught one-step equations for two months last school year. I watched your music video one time and I finally understood it. And so to your point, Marcus, I think when you use a medium that is music, that is relevant, that engages the learner, that they're interested in, suddenly information that they just weren't attending to or weren't like processing effectively, suddenly they get it. Now, I think there are a number of other things going on with music as well. It, it stimulates 
memory centers of the brain. So information put to music is easier to remember. When you look at our music videos, they're multimodal. So there's a visual component, obviously an auditory component. We have talent dancing and doing choreographed moves that reiterate the information. And we sometimes have kids say, I'll be taking a test and I'm struggling. And then I do the dance moves and the information comes back to me. So there's actually a lot going on there if we unpack why we're getting the results that we're getting. But I would I would absolutely agree that interest and engagement is a big part of it. I, I mean, in many ways, what you guys are doing is, is is quite a disruptive technology, quite a disruptive approach. And by the way, for any listeners who are interested, I know you can go online and look at your website and see examples of the types of, of tools you're talking about, which I think really illustrates exactly what you just said. I mean, as a person who was never particularly gifted, uh, particularly in math, uh, I, I can I can appreciate where, you know, if you're not inherently interested in math, I know you've always been interested in math. Uh, to me, it was always a burden to take math classes. I can see where this really does change the entire approach towards learning for, for, for students. When you think about where the company is going, where you're taking the technology, are you focusing now and is there a thought about how you're going to do this in the future? Are you still focusing on individual teachers, individual districts? Are you focusing on public versus private schools, parents? As, as, a, as a parent of, of twin girls who are, you know, I'm amazed sometimes by what gets them excited when it comes to learning some of the, uh, the, the, the programs that are out there, including obviously Museology. Where, where, where's the company going? I mean, where do you both see the company going in terms of what, what you're targeting, what market segments you're targeting, to put it crassly, and then also where the content is going? Sure. So we've, we've actually seen a, a shift in our focus from spring of last year, starting with school closures. And so typically, or, or prior to that, we were really focusing on licensing museology to districts and to schools. And suddenly when, with schools shut down end of last, or, or not shut down, schools closed and remote learning being the predominant learning vehicle, we saw a huge uptick in interest directly from teachers and from parents. We typically saw like a three to one ratio of teachers to parents. Coming out of the summer and into this school year, there were days when it was like 50-50 teachers to parents signing up. We, we saw like a big increase in interest from parents directly. And so it's, it's kind of forced us to expedite looking at a direct-to-consumer strategy where we can sell Museology subscriptions directly to parents. We're also in a very kind of peculiar predicament where we have a lot of teachers, and this is just like kind of a ridiculous notion, but we have a lot of teachers going, I'm, I wanna buy this myself and pay out of my own pocket, which is just, gosh, so sad that you know, uh, likening it to a doctor showing up to a hospital to perform surgery, having to pay for their own equipment. It's just like a ridiculous idea kind of. And then you look at what teachers get paid. So it like breaks our heart to even think about a teacher saying, I'm gonna have to dip into my own pocket to buy museology for my students. And how much does it cost for 20 students or 100 students and 200 students? And quite frankly, we're trying to navigate our way through that right now, whether it's just absorbing those costs ourselves or finding, corporate partners or foundations that are interested in helping to underwrite access to the platform for teachers who are looking to go out of pocket. And so our strategy has 
shifted a little bit now, Marcus, by virtue of just like market conditions. And in terms of the longer term view and, and vision for us, you know, we joke that like the grand slam for us is there's a day where someone goes, wait a second, in 2020, you didn't use music to learn everything? Like, you know, for us, this very much is, as you were saying, it's it's disruptive. It's it's a new type of, well, it's not new, it's as old as the sun, but it's a learning technology that can be implemented now at scale and really effectively and in a highly credible way to supercharge learning zero to 100. You might describe a little bit of the intuitive nature of the platform, so it's not something that is so difficult to navigate that uh, a parent or a, you know a student um, or even a teacher can't pick up. Yeah, as as Bob's saying, we designed the platform to be super intuitive. We really never have a student say, "How do you use it?" <laughs> um, and it draws on these two major themes or idioms that really everybody's used to doing, which is watching video online and playing games. And so Musology works using a fully gamified system. We have a three-step method where students answer warm-up questions, kind of like a trivia game to unlock our music videos. Then they watch the videos as many times as they need. And then they progress through three levels of gamified quote unquote challenges, which are really quizzes, but they're called challenges. So, you know, we have students take a challenge 20 times because they want to level up to the next challenge level and students earn silver, gold and platinum records inside the platform as they advance. And so it's it's been a very effective system that for learners, it's, it's like the stuff they're doing all the time on mobile devices and through apps and online. So it's very intuitive. And then for parents and teachers, there's a playlist function where they can create custom playlists and assign them to students to help direct and guide their learning. So very intuitive platform. I would imagine teachers and, and administrators, like all people, there is going to be a segment of people who are very um, eager to try something new, to try to learn a new approach. And there's going to be a segment of folks that are going to be resistant to um, to taking a new approach and will want to go sort of by default with whatever they they grew up with or whatever they are used to. Uh, have you seen that dynamic um, in 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 this disruptive technology, this disruptive approach that you're taking? So, Marcus, when I was doing work with mind mapping as a teenager, interestingly enough, I encountered exactly what you're talking about back then. There were teachers who like embraced it and loved it. And then there was you know, a percentage of folks who were resistant. And I think with anything that's new or, or different or just like not business as usual, there, there always will be some degree of resistance. So it's something I was prepared for. But I have to say, I've been surprised at the lack of resistance. We still do encounter it, don't get me wrong. However, what we're seeing is how many teachers recognize that they want and need engagement tools for their students. They need ways of making whatever they're teaching accessible and relevant and of the now for, for their students and learners. I think the challenge in the education space is not so much 
the receptivity of educators as much as what's entailed to sell a new product into a school district or school and you know, get that degree of su support and buy-in, which has nothing to do with how effective the actual uh, product is. It's, it's just a, like a very interesting sector that from you know one district to the next or one school to the next, um, how these decisions are made can be unique and idiosyncratic. So it's, it's, it's a challenging sector to sell into, especially when you're the new kid on the block. And so I think that's been the greater challenge for us versus teachers not want, be, being open and receptive to something. I think most teachers do get it anecdotally. I mean, you know, they've all been exposed to the one-off songs, periodic table or whatever, Schoolhouse Rock. And it's, it's making that leap to where administratively or school board or a you know, the superintendent. There's a lot of different sort of decision makers in the process that make it a challenge. But, it, you know, we keep banging away, and I think it keeps validating itself. I um, feel like, you know, at some point, as we continue to expand and grow the vertical of math and then move into reading and literacy and then move into other areas of learning, that, you know, this will become more and more of an embraced technology if that's the correct word. <laughs> well, Bob, let me let me follow up on 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 that and on something you said earlier. I mean, if I think about museology, one of the one of the words that comes to my mind is engagement, right? Uh, how do you engage students? How do you engage learners? And I know you've spent your whole career thinking about how to engage the public. I mean, as a as a person in the music industry, you're always thinking about how how to get people interested and why certain people seem to have what it takes and some people maybe lack a little bit of that and i know you've you've thought deeply about teachers and and how to get make teachers more engaging how to give them the tools to become more engaging maybe share with us a little bit about your thoughts in that regard in other words you know this concept of teachers as entertainers as we got into this more and more i started to realize that yeah everybody in some ways communicating a message and whether it be a singing a song or whether it be presenting a, a sermon or whatever you are trying to reach your audience and the thought was as we got into this deeper are there certain skill sets that we could take from the entertainment space and put it into the classroom and then the thought was well is there a way of developing a curricula for a semester where you basically go in and show a teacher some of the things that a, an entertainer does to engage and to get a response from an audience. And as I said earlier, it's not that you expect everybody to come out and being Michael Jackson moonwalking, but on the other hand, you could share something that could be imparted later on when the teacher needs to compete because we're all competing with other types of stimuli and you know that that's taking place whether it be your phone or your computer or you know noise or whatever that I think the teacher has to overcome and I think it's much more difficult today than it's ever been in the classroom and now that the classroom has become both a at home or a remote 
type of experience, it's even more important for the teacher to understand how you need to engage that listener and that fan or that student. And uh, I mean, that's where I, I feel like we really need to begin to focus and, and see how we can help them become better communicators. They know the material. They know what they're, they know the song. They just, it's how do you really sell it, you know? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating new area. And we'll all, I know we'll all be uh, staying tuned to, to hear what you, you both come up with. Because if you can figure that out, if you can figure out how to make teachers, whether at any level, better at what they do, uh, I think that'll be a benefit for all of us, frankly, whether or not we're in the teaching area, because we're all, in a sense, teaching someone something. It just depends on the context. And, and sort of with that in mind, that spirit of sharing with others how to do this the right way, for, the, for those who are interested in accessing content, and, and both reviewing what you guys have done, seeing how well it works, and then also getting involved, I, I guess I have a two-part question. The first part is, if I'm an administrator and I listen to this or otherwise learn about museology, if I'm a parent, if I'm a teacher, how do I go about accessing the content? How do I go about subscribing, et cetera? So anyone can visit our website, museology.com, M-U-Z-O-L-O-G-Y, and can sign up for to try it free for 30 days and check it out and kick the tires and see if it's the right fit and solution for your students or kids or district school and or people can contact us directly info info at museology m-u-z-o-l-o-g-y dot com the other thing is anyone who's interested in helping to bring museology to a low resource school or to bring it to teachers and students who may otherwise not be able to afford access to the platform. We're, we're very much in this climate of hybrid and remote learning and, and some of the challenges going on during the pandemic. We're, we're very much looking for partners, be it at the level of foundations, not-for-profits, companies that are looking to get involved to work together to help get museology in, in the hands of as many students and, and teachers as, as possible and anybody interested in reaching out on that front again if they email us at info at museology.com we'd be delighted to hear from anybody yeah that is such a great suggestion because i uh, as we know a lot of our clients a lot of companies are looking for ways of making high impact contributions to society generally and i think no matter where one stands ideologically politically what have you one thing everyone can agree on is that that helping kids, particularly kids who don't have the resources uh, to access a program, such an incredible program like Museology, is something that that I can I can absolutely see companies and and foundations getting behind. So thank you for thank you for sharing that, and frankly, thank you both for both being um, such great friends to our firm, but also more importantly to pioneering this this new way of thinking about learning that I will bet you a lot of our listeners have not thought about, have not heard about, but will be looking into because it just seems to be the future 
And again, I really want to thank you on behalf of White Collar Briefly and Perkins and the ABA, but just also on behalf of myself. You're both wonderful people, wonderful professionals, and and thank you for what you're doing to lend your experience and your expertise to such an important topic that I know we all care about. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Marcus. It's been such a pleasure. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.